All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for being with us uh, once again. This is our weekly COVID-19 press update, and we are back with our regular cast of characters, uh, Acting Secretary for the Department of Health, David Scrace, uh, DOH Deputy Secretary, Laura Potahone, and DOH State Epidemiologist, Christine Ross. So as usual, our principals will take us to take us through their presentation and we'll do Q&A thereafter. So our principals, feel free to turn your cameras on and I will turn it over to you, Dr. Scrace, to get us started with any opening comments uh, before diving into slides. Yes, well, uh, thank you, Matt. It's great to be back on our regular time and day. Uh, if we could spotlight the ASL interpreters as we start, there we go. That was an instant uh, response, nicely done. Uh, we're gonna just give you an update today on what's going on with COVID in the state as we usually do with a couple different angles of the data and some national data as well. So with that, I think if I could, we could get the first slide, uh, this is an update today from today's epidemiology report. There are 959 cases. And if that makes you nervous to see that number be that uh, high, then it makes us nervous as well. We, uh, uh, it's a high number. Unfortunately, I know I'm getting a message that my audio is uneven. And so I will do my best to, uh, uh, to do what I can do here, but it's based on my internet connection, unfortunately. And uh, it has been a little troublesome today. So in any case, uh, you can see 389 people in the hospital. That's a trending upwards. 15 deaths, sadly, to report today. Any death, of course, is one that we regret and mourn as a state. There's always a family and often children and brothers and sisters and even parents involved. And so, um, and we have also passed the 5,000 uh, number of people all covered by our media partners over the past couple of days. You can see the total number of cases there, the total number of hospitalizations. Uh, it's interesting, we're now up to 13% of our population who's had an active COVID infection that we're aware of with a positive test. We have about 6.6% of people, which is about one in 15. One in, out of every 15 people that has a COVID infection will end up in the hospital. And then about 1.8% of everyone who gets COVID uh, will die, sadly, from this fatal uh, disease in some people. And then just to combine those last two numbers, if you are hospitalized, uh, we're seeing about 19% of people who are hospitalized with COVID uh, actually not uh, leaving the hospital alive. So in any case, uh, we're pleased with uh, uh, the fact that we're all back here together today. And I, and I don't often say it enough, but if I could pick any two people to be here to update uh, New Mexico and what's going on with COVID, it would be our own and Christine Ross, and with that, I'm going to turn this over to Laura to give us an update on vaccination. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much uh, for having us again today. And um, I'm excited to report out that we continue to slowly increase our vaccination rate, which is very, it's, it's, it's very important given what David just shared. Uh, unfortunately, um, there's still, COVID cases because there's still a percentage of people not vaccinated, but the exciting part is 72.3 of New Mexicans are vaccinated who are, are 18 and over fully vaccinated. 
54.2 of New Mexicans 12 to 17 year olds also fully vaccinated. Um, partially vaccinated people, 81.9% of New Mexicans 18 and over and 62.4 of New Mexicans 12 to 17. That's really exciting. Thanks again, New Mexico, for all the great work you're doing to keep our community safe. And then 8.2 of New Mexicans 18 and over have received a booster dose. So uh, you can see that in New Mexico, it's not even throughout the state. And we just continue to encourage people to talk to their um, trusted people in their communities to try to get more information about getting vaccinated. Uh, next slide. Um, these are the weekly vaccine doses administered since December 24th. And so as you can see, um, there, we are at a steady curve up and just kind of flattening a little bit. So like I said, slowly but steadily, we're getting more and more people vaccinated. Next slide. Um, one of our big concerns is the gap um, for racial and ethnic equity. So you can see that uh, Hispanic and Latino populations 16 and older, 49.7% uh, of people are vaccinated. So there's a gap still between um, people who are Hispanic Latino populations and also our African American populations at 51.9%, but also um, some of our white populations at 65.1%. So just trying to keep an eye out on, you know, making sure that people who are vulnerable, uh, we're reaching out to them. I know so many of you are reaching out to your community members, so many pharmacies and, and providers and community organizations and even our own public health department really reaching out, trying to get, you know, people the information and knowledge that they need. Next slide. Um, so we have some really good updates for everybody today. And uh, one of them is the five to 11 year old vaccine approval progress. Next slide. Um, the FDA committee actually approved the Pfizer vaccine for five to 11 year olds and CDC guidance is likely to be coming next week. So that's really exciting for kids. Um, the panel members voted 17 to zero to recommend the shot, which is really great. It's two doses, three weeks apart. And uh, here's the CDC pediatrician who said, to me, the benefit is clear. We don't want children to be dying of COVID, even if it's far fewer children than adults. So this is very, very exciting for us to vaccinate another group of people who have previously been unvaccinated. Next slide. Um, here's the process for the 5 to 11-year-old vaccine approval. So we are just completed step one. So that's reviewing all the, um, the FDA committee that looks at all the scientific evidence to see how safe it is. And like I said, they deemed it safe. Um, the review and final approval by the FDA is within the next week. Then it'll be reviewed by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Progress uh, Practices called ACIP. And then after that, uh, CDC will give the final guidance and we'll get the review and approval by our New Mexico medical advisory team. And early November, we'll be able to get our five to 11 year olds vaccinated. So that's super excited for all those parents out there who are waiting for their kids to get their vaccine. Next slide. Um, we also, our team has been working really hard. There's a whole vaccine team at the Department of Health uh, working with providers and people all across the state. Um, and our new electronic consent form for child vaccination is now available at vaccinenewmexico.org slash kids. 
So if you're a parent or a guardian, you can actually now link your child's profile to your own profile and manage it for your child on their own behalf. So you can update your profile information, schedule your appointments, and also complete the parental consent forms. So that's exciting for all of you. Uh, this is how you link. There's instructions on how to link your dependents or children to your profile at vaccinenewmexico.org kids. So uh, you can start doing that now. Um, as soon as you, know, you see the show, you can uh, do that. Next slide. Um, booster doses are actually now available for all three COVID-19 vaccines. And uh, the, so for the Pfizer and Moderna, so Pfizer was approved last month, Moderna booster vaccines are now approved and eligible New Mexicans include people who are 65 and older, the same group as Pfizer, 18 and older who live in long-term care settings, 18 and over who have underlying medical conditions, um, or who work or live in high risk settings, and it's six months or more after the completion of your initial series. So just, you know, we think that everybody who's in these categories should go get um, boosted, but if you're 65 and older because of your risk for getting sicker, if you're 65 and older, we're really encouraging that group to really go get vaccinated. Um, the Moderna boosters are half a dose, just so you know, um, but people who are immunocompromised, so remember that group way back when in August, um, people who are immunocompromised receiving a third shot for additional immunity will continue to receive a full dose. Next slide. Um, so the next slide is also exciting for those of you who got J&J. Uh, the J&J booster vaccine is anyone 18 and older, and um, basically you can get it two months or more after receiving a single dose of primary vaccination. And next slide, this is um, more information. And I think just one thing we just want to, you know, thank New Mexicans for, for your patience as the science develops and we get more and more information, you have more opportunities to get different kinds of boosters. So the boosters you can now mix and match. It's really your preference, the CDC um, and the FDA approved mixing and matching, which means that if you got a Pfizer or Moderna for your primary dose, you can now get any booster at six months. So it, part of it is just your preference because they've shown that you can mix and match and still get a boosted immunity. And also um, if, you know, let's say you forgot your card and you're like, I can't remember if I got Pfizer or Moderna, you can just go get any dose. Um, if you did get J&J &J as your primary, you can also get any other, other boosters um, at two months. So basically, let's say I got J&J, &J, I can decide to get a Pfizer or Moderna two months later, or if I got a Pfizer or Moderna, I can decide to get J&J, &J, Pfizer or Moderna at six months. So a lot of options for people. Um, in terms of our booster dose administration progress, you can see that Booster doses are steadily increasing. We now have 125,843 total booster doses administered since uh, August 1st. So good job everybody in the community for vaccinating people and for everybody going out to get your booster doses. Next slide. Um, once again, even though the booster doses are important for boosting your immunity, it's really, really important that those of you who haven't been vaccinated, like I said, talk to someone trusted, 
full vaccination is still our first priority because any of the vaccines that we have will really prevent against getting severe hospitalizations and death. And like David said, we don't want to lose any more family members, sisters, brothers, daughters, you know, sons to, to COVID. Next slide. Um, so you can make your vaccine appointment today, um, whether it's your first doses or your booster doses, uh, you can get your COVID-19 appointments um, online at vaccinenewmexico.org. You can schedule an appointment with your primary care provider or a pharmacy. You can also get your flu shot at the same time. So that's, that's great because let's protect ourselves from all different illnesses. And then if you, um, if you want to talk to your provider or someone trusted to have any questions about COVID vaccine or your eligibility for booster dose, definitely do that. Uh, next slide. Um, we also have a call center. We really developed the call center as an equity issue for all the New Mexicans who don't have access to a website. So the call center pur purpose is really to support those people with scheduling online um, by phone. Um, option three or nine takes callers directly to a Spanish speaker. And thanks to our call center, it's open 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Mondays through Sunday, every day of the week. So thanks for, um, thanks for the call center for doing that. Next slide. And then I want to uh, pass it over to my amazing colleague, Dr. Christine Ross. So thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Petahone. And I want to just make sure that uh, I, you can hear me OK. And then I'll get started. We can hear you. Okay, getting the thumbs up. So um, thank you for having me uh, here today. Um, I wish I had uh, better news to share. Uh, um, so let's just uh, go ahead and launch in. Um, we're gonna start with uh, COVID-19 global situation update. Um, as we all are well aware, the world uh, continues to grapple with this uh, global pandemic. Uh, this uh, slide has data on it from the WHO or the World Health Organization COVID-19 data dashboard. Uh, globally, there's, there has been over 243 million cases of COVID-19 confirmed and reported and over 4.9 uh, million deaths. I think this is, these are just uh, staggering uh, statistics. Um, on the far right-hand side of this slide, you can see cases. This is trending out the cases on top and the deaths uh, on the bottom. And you can see that the globally, we were beginning to see uh, a nice downward trend there uh, in, in confirmed cases, and it, it seems to have plateaued. Um, down on the bottom of this slide, you, they're breaking down these cases by WHO region. And I'm going to point out a few things about this on the next slide so we can go ahead and go forward. Um, so here we're just going to zone in on the region of the Americas, which obviously the United States is part of the region of the Americas. This is in the gold color at top on the top here on the right. And as you can see, what's nice is that we are seeing in the Americas a downward trend um, over time, uh, a very much welcome downward trend in our region of the world. Um, but I think what's very interesting is that the 
converse of this is happening uh, in the region of Europe, where you see uh, an increasing uh, trend uh, starting to uh, emerge. Um, what I understand is that Eastern Europe is accounting for a substantial number of these cases, um, places like the Federation of Russia, uh, which has a very a uh, much smaller proportion of their uh, citizens vaccinated than we do here in, in the United States. Um, but notably, notably, there's also a surge being seen in the United Kingdom, Kingdom which um, unfortunately very uh, similar case trends um, that they had seen earlier in the summer when they first uh, were dealing with uh, the Delta variant. But I, the one take home message though I want to share is that when you unpack this a little bit, you see this alarming rise in cases in the United Kingdom, but what you don't see is a similar uh, a rise in hospitalizations and deaths. And so very different from what they had seen um, in prior surges and most certainly is related to their high uh, vaccine uh, um, uptake uh, throughout the United Kingdom. So let's go ahead and move on. So from globally, we're gonna talk a little bit about the national uh, situation. This is a really busy slide, um, but I just want to start with, uh, with the numbers like we did globally. So 45, over 45 million uh, total cases have been reported in the United States and over 736,000 deaths. Again, uh, these numbers are, are staggering uh, and um, uh, just it's a, a very um, um, unbelievable public health crisis that we've been we've been dealing with. Um, what I wanted to show here is that, you know, when you look underneath the, the overall national trend, um, you know, this is a large country and we see um, peaks and troughs troughs of activity that hit different parts of the country at different times. Um, I, don't, I don't personally believe that these patterns are easily uh, teased apart and, uh, and that we can say this is related to seasonality or XYZ. I think it's, it's quite a complicated pattern. Um, and I think um, it's just important to understand overall in the United States, we are beginning to see this much uh, welcome decrease in, in um, viral activity and new cases. And so this is displayed on this graph on the right hand, is, hand of the slide. This is the daily trend in COVID-19 cases in the United States reported to CDC. And again, you see this nice downward trend. And then we're also beginning to see a downward uh, trend in the seven-day moving average of deaths. Um, most notably, I would just want to mention Alaska has, has really been hit hard. They continue to be hit hard, though. Um, I believe the latest update I heard is that they're they're beginning to see a slight um, uh, a trend in the right direction. Up in the Northwest, they also had been hit uh, quite hard, but I understand that they're beginning to trend down as well. And other parts of the United States that were hit were hit very hard uh, over the past uh, one to two months uh, as they grappled with Delta surges have now begun to see a, a, a real reprieve. Here in New Mexico, um, we continue to sit at, at an uncomfortable plateau. And I think we can go to the next slide and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. 
So this is our statewide um, epi curve where we plot the number of uh, new cases. Uh, these are plotted by the date we receive um, or the date the specimen was uh, was collected by a, from a from a patient or client uh, or person. And we plot these out over time. And what you see the big mountain in the middle of the slide is our very large winter surge that we grappled with. This is pre-Delta, but this was also prior to um, our massive vaccine rollout efforts. And so what you see here on the right-hand slide is certainly we, we, this is fueled by Delta, and we've talked about this, uh, I think, week in and week out, that this is, has been fueled by, the, by this highly infectious uh, variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus called the Delta variant. And we saw this uh, peak um, and began to see a decline. Uh, we were very happy that we obviously had flattened out this curve. And what I mean by that is we don't see the large numbers that we saw back in the winter. So we clearly flattened this curve, but it is not trending down as we would like to see it. We are sitting on this very uncomfortable plateau, which is highly impacting our healthcare delivery system and all of us uh, here in New Mexico. And uh, uh, Secretary Scrace will provide more information about this um, um, when he speaks to you all. Um, next few slides, I think we're going to go into what's happening regionally. So we take that statewide epi curve and then we break it down by region of the state and we tr we're, we're tracking um, new, new cases uh, by region. This is the metro region, obviously the, the, the most populous region. And so it, it really drives a lot of what we see across the state as far as the trends. And as you can see here, metro reg region sitting at a um, uncomfortably high plateau, we wanna see this trend back down to where we had seen uh, where we were sitting back in June prior to Delta. So let's go to the next slide. Um, uh, these are some regional slides that we wanted to point out that we find are uh, worrisome. Here in the, on the left-hand part of the slide, you'll see the Northwest region. And um, unlike the Metro, which is sitting at this high level plateau, we actually see an increasing seven day moving average for the Northwest region, which is very, very concerning. Over on the right-hand side is the Southwest region where we are also seeing a high plateau and then what looks like um, we're even an increase is being seen in that region. So we're providing this so we can uh, share situational awareness so that people understand what's happening in the region where they live. Um, next slide. Um, this is pointing out the Northeast and the Southeast. The Northeast, I, I think this is still worrisome. We did see a downward trend, but then we're sitting at a bit of a plateau. The Southeast um, had an, un, an unusual pattern from the other regions where we saw a very steep rise in uh, the seven day moving average of cases and then a very sharp decline. So different from what we've seen in other regions and we certainly wanna zone in that this is a, a welcome reprieve that people are seeing in the Southeast and we hope that this continues to trend down to uh, pre-Delta uh, levels. Uh, next slide. 
Okay, and this, I think everyone's familiar with, this is our um, uh, map and table uh, where we combine the case rate or what we look at cases per 100,000 people, and then we combine that with the uh, test percent positivity, or out of how, out of um, all the people who go out and, and get a test in a specific county, how many are testing positive? And unfortunately, you see here that all of New Mexico is in a sea of red. Uh, red is indicative of a high level of community transmission. So what does this mean? This means that we don't see COVID-19 cases confined to a specific location or, or a rather setting or place or a specific group of people. In other words, there's a high level of community transmission and people are getting um, infected uh, um, uh, in, in many different uh, types of scenarios. And so um, one thing that we put into effect is we're asking everybody to mask when you're indoors. This is really important when you have this high level of circulation of the virus is that when we're indoors in public that we are masking. Um, we also know uh, that we have to continue to be vigilant, um, especially with numbers like this. And this means avoiding crowds, trying to take activities outdoors instead of indoors. Uh, make sure you're wearing a well-fitted mask. And then of course, anyone who's eligible, please, um, seek out a, a vaccine uh, if you have not been vaccinated, and then please uh, seek out a booster shot if you're eligible. And then next slide. I think, I believe this is my last slide. Um, and this is a graphic from a recent MMWR, which is uh, the name of a CDC publication. New Mexico was one of 13 jurisdictions that contributed data um, to this um, uh, publication and this, this study. And what does it tell us? It's this really important information. So we looked at incidents of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 uh, infection, hospitalization and, and death among those vaccinated, and we compared that to those unvaccinated. And so two important take-home messages, you, are, uh, you can vastly reduce your risk of infection, hospitalization, and death by getting vaccinated. Yeah. So five times uh, reduction in risk of infection, 10 times reduction of risk in hospitalization, 10 times reduction of risk for death among those vaccinated. The other take home message is that this looked at after Delta became the most common variant. And so what it showed is that our vaccines remain highly effective against the Delta variant. I believe that may be my last slide and I can turn this over now to um, Secretary Scrace. Uh, thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much, Christine. And uh, I'm going to try to finish this off here uh, and talk a little bit more about our hospitalizations and death uh, statistics. Uh, I'm going to, we got a great question from Scott Weiland from the Santa Fe, New Mexico, about why are we on this little saddle here? And when I talk about hospitalizations, I can talk about it there just as well as anywhere else. So let's move on to the next slide, Brianna. And uh, this is the hospitalization data since about July 1st. And you can see we've gone back up. We had that 
promising downward trend we've leveled off. And frankly, we're now going up again. Remember, there's a a gray bar here saying don't look at the most recent data since that's still coming in. But we actually have an upward trend in that 900 and some cases that you saw earlier goes along with that as well. We spent almost the whole modeling team meeting yesterday talking about this plateau, what's going on, why are we seeing this? You know, we're not entirely sure. We came up with a long list of possible reasons why we're not seeing the the cases just go up and come back down. But nobody was really convinced that any of them were the reason. And perhaps it could be a lot of different things. The real problem is that despite our calling of crisis standards of care, which was more of a acknowledgement of what was really going on in the hospitals, we're seeing this upward trend again in hospitalizations. One question is, well, how come... We're, we keep having COVID hospitalizations exceed our normal hospitalization capacity. Another great question, Scott. And, and the reason is right now we have a lot of people in the hospital, way more than last year at this time, with non-COVID illnesses. And our hospital leadership and physicians and others around the state are fairly convinced, although we don't have good data, that the folks who are in the hospital now are primarily there due to, due to much worse complications of illnesses as a result of not getting regular care during the pandemic. And so it isn't that the, the COVID uh, hospitalizations are higher than last time. It's not the case as I think back in August. are nonetheless full with what they're what they can verify is the sickest patients they've ever had. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, this is our modeling from Presbyterian. Uh, we looked at the other day. The good news is on the bottom, if you can point, point to that, Brianna, it looks like we're going to see a stable number of ICU admissions. Now, our ICUs are completely full. And Brianna, I, I don't think your cursor is really moving or big enough for people to see. And then, oh, there we go. And then, however, in the blue and above, that's the, the general medical surgical beds. And we are seeing a further projected uptick in those hospitalizations uh, and bed use for COVID patients, which, of course, is alarming. We're already in crisis standards of care. And now it looks like hospital utilization is going up. That's reflected also in the next slide, which is our weekly scoring of how our hospitals are doing. We're well up into the crisis standards of care range. As you all know, we declared that, issued public health orders almost 10 days ago. And so watching things very, very closely, working with our hospitals to try to manage these volumes. Uh, The next slide. And just the count. 20 available ICU beds, again, very few in Albuquerque. You can see there a few in rural areas. I know earlier this week we were making arrangements and did actually offload and overload farms all the way down to Las Cruces, some to Albuquerque, but some to Las Cruces. So that's a really long way to move in a very sick ICU patient just to make room, but we continue to function as one giant delivery system 
equalizing the ICU volumes and the team is working very hard, very well together. You can see we have 93 available and uh, that's going to come in handy is if the modeling that we saw previous slide from Presbyterian turns out to be true and we have a further increase in the number of people in our hospitals here in New Mexico. Next slide. <clears throat> uh, I wanted to talk about some things we can do to help our hospitals. Uh, FEMA is uh, the federal uh, you know, emergency management group that deals with tornadoes and hurricanes and other things, but they're also have been a great partner of the state during this pandemic and provide us a lot of different resources when they, we need them. We did have them come in and do an assessment because we were pretty uh, urgently in need of additional help. This happened at the end of September, and they really did confirm that, uh, that number one, that transfer system that we use that we've told you about is a national kind of best practice. They haven't seen any state as coordinated as we are. Second, uh, they found really that all of the facilities in the state really are at their maximum capacity. We knew that already. Staffing was the limiting factor. We knew that. They, at the time, at the end of September, did not have assets available, although we're re-petitioning them this week. Uh, in addition, we have a contract that's been executed with a staffing firm, and we're looking to bring in 290 medical support staff, most of these nurses, to a number of places in the state. We know that they're in a pretty desperate situation in Farmington, also down in Alamogordo, and we're trying to direct resources there. And these, these resources are paid for by the federal government, so we're pleased. Also, we're not relocating people from New Mexico. This is getting resources from outside of New Mexico to come in. So that's starting to pick up right now, and, and our contractors are working on that. The last thing is that, uh, that FEMA will pay both higher nursing costs to bring in traveling nurses. So we continue to work to connect our hospitals with uh, FEMA. The process is a little bit complicated, uh, but again, it's free uh, federal support for these efforts. And so we're working at our hospitals to go through that process as well. Next slide. Uh, these are coming through kind of in slow motion. I'm not sure if it's your end, Brianna, or my end, but uh, this will become a graph. Here we go. Of hospital employee vaccination rates. And you can see that with the mandate in uh, late August, uh, the green are people who are already fully vaccinated. The blue is people partially vaccinated. Uh, the red is our individuals who are just unvaccinated. And then the and the orange is the unvaccinated with an exemption. And you can see uh, we've done really well with our hospitals in the state and uh, only 2.1% uh, need the rest of their vaccination and only 0.6% who remain vaccinated. Uh, the department has uh, uh, sent letters of warning and things like that. And in many cases, the partially uh, the, uh, unva unvaccinated, that red group, which you can't even see the bar on uh, in, the, in the bar graph off to the right there, unless your vision is better than mine. Uh, these are employees who are just spending out their paid time off 
none of them are having any contact with patients. And uh, once they use up their time off, they can either come back fully vaccinated or they'll no longer have their job. Next slide. Uh, we also track nursing home vaccination rates. This is a little different because CMS is doing the data collection. So there's a lag in the data. And uh, you can see, uh, Brianna, I think I want the nursing home slide. And I, there we go. And are others having these slides come across very, very slowly or is it just me? It might be me. I'm not hearing anybody say anything. But uh, CMS collects the nursing uh, facility data. CMS fines nursing homes $1,000. You can see that they don't have the unvaccinated with exemption there. These are percent diagrams. So sometimes the percents can actually get larger when less facilities report. But doing fairly well, almost 90% fully vaccinated, 4.2% partially vaccinated, and uh, we're working with CMS on the exemption status of that 6.2%. And then finally is the assisted living facility employee vaccination rates. And those are uh, in on this next slide. Not as good uh, progress in assisted living uh, facilities. We have a bunch that aren't reporting and the department is out warnings about that as well and but you can see that not over 90 percent of employees are fully vaccinated 2.1 percent so similar to nursing homes and we do have exemption data here and we are working out with and regulating and finding those assisted living facilities that's 6.6 percent where we have unvaccinated individuals also the folks who are not reporting so i think we're closing in we're planning on going to a less frequent reporting schedule uh, monthly starting in November, and then we'll reevaluate after a couple of months, see how we're doing. Once you get over, uh, well, like with hospitals, we're at 99.4%. There's no need to do the weekly reporting, but we'll continue to provide this data for all of you. Next slide, please. <clears throat> And I'm just waiting for the slides to catch up. Uh, this could be some good news. And uh, it's I, I personally think it's too early to tell, but my epidemiology team and, and uh, Dr. Ross, whose opinion I often defer to on men, believe that, that those last five weeks, you see the numbers in the 40 deaths per week maybe an honest to goodness drop from when we were uh, 69, 83, 73 cases. I certainly do hope so. Uh, I'm sure every New Mexican prays that we will see a drop and that uh, death count or at least hopes that. We did pass the 5,000 death mark on Monday and you can see we have 5,012 uh, deaths. I think 5,000 seems like a big number, but it's really a small number when you consider the potentially dozen or more close friends and family members of each person who dies in New Mexico. And on the next slide, uh, there was some really nice coverage uh, uh, the other day from the Santa Fe New Mexican again uh, about Mary Martinez, a 
Santa Fe resident who lost her husband and her father to COVID within a four-day period in December last year. Uh, you can see her with her grandmother showing him uh, the ashes of her husband uh, and talking about uh, the loss of her husband. Of course, there was not a vaccine available. It didn't come in time for them, uh, but all of the loved ones. And, and, you know, I thought it was very poignant when Mary said in the article that every time she sees anything about coronavirus, it brings back the memory of those two folks in her family she was so close to who passed within four days of each other. And she encourages everyone to get vaccinated and actually get booster shots as well when they're available. Okay. Well, we're on the home stretch here. A few updates and reminders about uh, things. Oh, wait, no, not quite on the home stretch. COVID-19 treatments, we're doing well. Again, uh, next slide, please, Brianna. <clears throat> you can see that we're doing a great job. Uh, Regeneron is the treatment we give in the hospital, sorry, remdesivir, the treatment we give in the hospital being highly utilized. Almost every New Mexico COVID patient who's admitted does get uh, remdesivir, uh, an effective treatment for at moderately ill COVID uh, infected individuals. And you can see I want a real strong shout out to our New Mexico hospitals and providers who uh, every week for the past couple of weeks, past three weeks, set a new record in uh, uh, antibody, monoclonal antibody administration. Again, if you are positive for COVID with symptoms and you're over 64 or you're obese, or you have any one of the risk factors for serious uh, COVID disease and hospitalization, please, please seek out treatment. You can lower your chances of being hospitalized by three quarters, uh, 75%, which would really, really help our hospitals who already have more patients uh, than uh, they have beds for today. Next slide, please. Uh, we, I think we're featuring here, we had a whole bunch of uh, hospitals who gave more than 30 doses. Uh, we're showing all of them to you here. Uh, Presbyterian uh, reports is a system that's all over the state. And so uh, we've got, uh, 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 you know, 156 there. I won't read all the numbers but we really appreciate Covenant, Gerald Champion, Gallup Indian Medical Center, Memorial Medical Center, uh, that's in Las Cruces, and Eastern New Mexico Medical Center, who've really ramped up antibody treatments. And that's particularly noteworthy because these people are darn busy uh, taking care of so many different uh, patients and so many sick people in their hospitals. Next slide, please. Uh, I wanted to, you know, just remind folks about the need to keep up that regular health care. We've talked today already about our hospitals are full, completely full of people who did delay medical care. You can see 41% of Americans have delayed uh, medical care, including cancer screenings. Uh, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So we wanted to remind all women about getting those regular mammograms. Uh, before the pandemic, only 63% of women were up to date, and now it's even lower. And uh, worldwide, breast cancer has now become the number one cancer diagnosis worldwide, 
used to be lung cancer. Next slide. <clears throat> Please. Uh, another reminder that a lot of our friends and neighbors still need help. This is just the count of unique customers uh, in the human services department. Uh, you can see back at the beginning of the pandemic, we had about 950,000 and that goes up and, up and down, but we've increased our number of people that we're helping in New Mexico. By, I think it's 167,500. And, and those choppy lines there on the right going up and down, the higher values are when we do give out PEBT benefits, that's the pandemic, uh, food benefit for students. So if kids are getting uh, schooling at home, we actually pay for their meals at home, like we pay for them in school. So uh, still uh, a lot of our neighbors and friends relying heavily on benefits. You can see some remarkable numbers that our SNAP program has provided money for 385 million, that's million meals to Mexicans this year, Medicaid covering 147,000 individuals. That's up by almost 100,000 since the beginning of the pandemic. And we continue to provide benefits for energy assistance, heating and cooling, and, and uh, even income support and shelter when needed, and also ensuring child support payments. So there are still a lot of needy New Mexicans. And even though unemployment is slowly, progressively dropping, a lot of folks still need help. And, uh, and while that's our job, at the Human Services Department to make sure that everybody who qualifies for a benefit actually receives it. It's also all of our job as New Mexico to lend a helping hand and neighbors in need. And so I just want to highlight that today. Uh, the pandemic is going strong and the economic situation that people are in also very much still affected for New Mexicans. In case you're wondering, that 1,112,495 people, unique people, is more than half of our population. Next slide. I did want to also uh, just highlight one more thing, and this is a little bit of a preview of coming attractions. Uh, Kurt Steinhaus, our Secretary for Education, could be with us today. He's with the leadership of the Mescalero tribe, but uh, DOH does have a $64 million grant from CDC to enhance testing in the schools and the idea is with more testing, kids don't have to go home necessarily to be quarantined. They can quarantine in school. Now, when they go home, they have to be in quarantine. Uh, right so far, uh, we're able to offer $70,000 to each school district, plus an additional $30 per enrolled student for this program. We've got about two thirds of our school districts uh, already on this. We encourage the rest of them to get on the program. And our goal, of course, is to get to 100% of school districts fully participating. But we in New Mexico are working with the CDC, along with Illinois, Kentucky, and Georgia, Georgia to collect data for this program to keep our kids in school. Kurt, uh, Secretary Steinhaus will be with us next week, and you'll hear more then. So this is just a little bit of a preview about what we're up to and some optimism we have about our ability to allow all of our kids more time in school in the safest possible way. Uh, and by in school, I mean in-person school, even though remote learning, of course, will continue. Next slide, please. 
And this is just a reminder, Delta is at least twice as infectious. We need to be at least twice as careful. I think Christine walked through those things that we all can be doing during a time of extreme risk and high spread of the virus uh, for both uh, uh, you know, vaccinated and unvaccinated people now becoming infected. Uh, lots of protection against hospitalization and death for vaccinated people. But nonetheless, we still need to be careful, uh, get tested, seek out treatment, uh, keep that mask on indoors outside your own home, and then the usual guidance about hand washing, keeping things clean, wearing those masks, social distancing, getting vaccinated, and of course, getting that need to prevent health care. And that's it for the slides. We're going to turn them off now and we're going to turn it back over, I believe, to Matt to sort of handle questions today. Absolutely. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Scrace. And uh, for those of you that have been with us before, you'll be familiar with the routine. For anybody that's new, uh, here's how we like to do this portion of the the, uh, the press conference. Uh, just use the raise your hand feature in, uh, in Zoom, and uh, I'll call on folks in order. And uh, no need to, to collate a bunch of questions all at once. We'll go through the list of folks as many times as we need to to ensure that everybody gets their questions answered. So please just do ask one question at a time. And uh, when you get called on, please just uh, say your name and your outlet as well. Uh, we will begin with Susan Bryan, followed by Julia Goldberg, followed by Gabrielle Burkhart. So Susan, you are unmuted. Feel free to ask your question. Thanks for uh, taking our questions today. This one might be for Dr. Scrace or uh, Dr. Ross. We have a handful of New Mexico counties that have very high vaccination rates like McKinley and Los Alamos. They're, they're pretty way up there, almost about 90%. And yet community spread remains pretty high in these places. So can you tell us a little bit why that high vaccination rate isn't translating to the reductions in spread? Yeah, I'm gonna start, but Christine, please jump in after me. I think this is a lot of what we talked about at the modeling team on, on uh, uh, Tuesday. It was yesterday, actually. I kind of lose track of days sometimes during the more difficult parts of this pandemic. You know, there's a bunch of different theories. One is that the immune protection afforded by the original vaccine isn't quite as specific for Delta as it was for the previous variants. The other piece is, you know, New Mexico led the pack, the national pack in getting people vaccinated. And the data about waning immunity or decline in antibodies means if we were first in, in getting everyone vaccinated, we may be first out in terms of that continued protection. So it underscores uh, the importance of uh, the booster shots, I think. And, you know, I've had my booster. Uh, I know, I think actually all of us have had our boosters. And the reason I know that we've all had our boosters is because we're over 18 and we have an underlying condition, just to make that really clear. And, uh, but I think, you know, I think we don't know everything and that it's become a real challenge I think I was thinking I was sort of bulletproof, uh, you know, when I was vaccinated. I don't think that anymore. I got my booster uh, as sort of my civic duty. I'm still being twice as careful. And then the last thing is Delta is just way, way more infectious than the previous strains. And so the chances of getting it, its ability to find a new person to infect uh, is a very efficient. Uh, the Delta variant has been a formidable foe. It's taken over 
of all the different types of uh, variants that we see. Usually through other peaks and troughs of other variants, they've been you know 50% or 40% or 70%. We haven't had any anybody in, it's, it's sort of like being at the top of the billboard charts for a record number of weeks. Delta has really occupied all of the infections. And so I, hopefully I, I left a few other options for you, Christine, that might be going on, but what else do you have to say about it? Yeah, I don't think, I think you were pretty comprehensive there. I think the, I would add, um, you know, I think early on we were, we, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, what, what would this, what's this uh, magic number we need to hit for herd immunity. And that number is elusive. I don't think we know what it is. And I think that um, obviously we haven't reached it. Um, uh, we, we, we continue to see that this this virus can can easily uh, take hold in a community and and um, uh, spread very quickly. So I think that's that's number one. Um, number two is I would say that this this virus can find it finds pockets of vulnerable people, and what I mean by vulnerable, I mean predominantly unvaccinated people, as our numbers clearly show. So. Uh, again, it, it doesn't matter if you if you are residing in an area where where maybe you have um, a higher relative vaccine uh, coverage than another area. If there are pockets of unvaccinated people, this virus continues to find them, and that is what's fueling our, our numbers. As when we we clearly show that when we break down cases, hospitaliz hospitalizations, and deaths by vaccine status. The other piece here, which um, Dr. Petahone has already addressed, and 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 forgive me, I think Dr. Scrace, you also already mentioned, but that we clearly see that there there is a waning immunity over time, and we began to see increasing number of breakthrough cases um, over time, and now uh, we have the opportunity to get a, a booster shot uh, rolled out, and so we're hoping. Uh, we can we can motivate people, get them out, get get them. Uh, first of all, if you're not vaccinated, to get vaccinated, and then second is is to boost your level of protection and, and get out and get that that booster shot. And then just the last thing, I don't I don't know if you mentioned or not, Secretary Scrace, that I would say human behavior. We are tired. We're tired of this pandemic. It it has gone on way too long, and people are uh, living their lives. And uh, part of that means uh, getting together. And so there are gatherings and um, uh, a lot more uh, activities uh, that where people uh, come together and the virus finds opportunities to uh, transmit from one person to another. So I, I would say that those things in a nutshell, I think is, is driving what we're, we're seeing. I could go on and on, but let me, let me pause there and see if that answered your question. Great. Uh, I think we're covered, but Susan, by all means, feel free to ask a follow-up if, if you'd like one to. One more thing, Matt, just to summarize. I think there was a very, very strong correlation through the summer uh, between high vaccination rates and low case rates. Like, very strong. And then when Delta came, that started to erode. And so, because that happened, 
at the same time that people were getting six months out for the vaccination from their vaccination. It's really hard for us to know. Up and other states are down. And so I, I think in another six months, probably some clever scientists will have plotted all that out and we'll have better information. But we wish we knew that too. And I, I, that modeling team is like the smartest people I think in the world. And we're all, you know, those folks are all like grasping and straws, like, what is the correlation here that we can do something about to prevent uh, case counts from continuing to rise and actually push it down? So for now, it's boosters, primary vaccine series, and new populations like kids next week uh, getting started on their vaccines. Thanks. Great. Thanks, everybody. Uh, next, we'll go to Julia Goldberg, followed by Gabrielle Burkhart. And then I'm going to ask a question that's in the chat on behalf of uh, Michaela Helian. Uh, Michaela, if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, just let me know and I'll correct. Uh, Julia, you are unmuted. Uh, thank you, Matt. This is Julia Goldberg with the Santa Fe Reporter. Thanks for letting me ask uh, a question. Um, earlier this week, uh, New Mexico Voices for Children presented some data to the legislature's uh, Health and Human Services Commission about the pandemic's impact on families of low-income residents and mostly non-white communities. A lot of it we've sort of heard in different forms um, from you, Dr. Patajon, and, and from all of you. But I, I guess it made me want to understand, based on that data and your own equity data tracking, how does that influence the outreach on vaccines for kids 5 through 11? Because I know you said that parents can update their own you know, their own, their own registry, but if they are not vaccinated or they don't have access or they're part of some of these communities that are high in the social vulnerability index, it's not necessarily like enough to just say, now kids can get vaccinated. Um, so I'm curious kind of how you're, how you're thinking about that. And if the approach, the equity approach for kids in any way differs in, from the equity approach for adults. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I can start on that. Um, the, we definitely feel the equity approach for kids is similar to the adults, but at even higher levels. And, and because a lot of people are willing to get vaccinated themselves, but they're worried about their kids. And that's so understandable. Like every parent, like I'm a parent, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, you're always worried about what you're putting in your kids' bodies, right? So that's super understandable. For people in um, higher social vulnerability areas, and also, um, you know, we've also seen racial ethnic inequities in the vaccine uptake. Um, we know that there needs to be more trust building. There needs to be more access to key messages that would be helpful to answer people's concerns. Because, you know, everyone is hearing different things. And I think David has mentioned this many times that misinformation is actually one of our biggest pandemics as well on top of the normal pandemic. So what we're trying to do at the Department of Health is to try to make that type of information uh, accessible to people, um, especially community health workers, community organizations, people in their own communities who can then share that as a trusted voice to the community. I know we can do more we're trying to do more. We have a, a Better Together program. I can put the link to the program in the, um, in the chat, um, but the Better Together program is money that the DOH um, has set aside for communities to do their own outreach 
to share information with the communities. We know this is a long haul because we can't undo all the years of racism, all the years of not equitable access to healthcare, but we're trying our best right now to say, how can we as a community Department of Health working with community organizations with different people to kind of say, yes, you know, we're here for you right now. We want you if, if you if you have questions, we want you to ask us questions and we have a whole a whole bunch of different educational materials for people to use as well. So um, that's the way we've been approaching it is to say we know that it's we know right now disproportionately for uh, uh, 12 to 15 year old vaccinations, our disparity on Hispanic uh, Latino vaccinations is huge. It's like 35%, sorry, my numbers, I can share you the exact number, but it's it's much less than the other kids. So we know we'll probably see the same thing for five to 11. So that's why we're doing a lot of outreach. We're also doing a set of surveys with University of New Mexico with Dr. Gabe Sanchez. Um, he's actually reaching out to uh, different groups right now as a survey to see if we can um, utilize some of those key messages of what um, parents say. Uh, is it evening hours that'll be better for people? Weekend hours? Would they rather have it at their school or at you know a community organization? So we're hopefully gathering all that data right now for the next few weeks um, and then be able to use that. And also any community input, that's what we also want, right? tell us where you want the vaccine. We're building that up so we can reach the people who need it the most. So thank you for asking that question, Julia. Yeah, Julia, thanks for giving me the opportunity to show my favorite slide that as you know, I do every single time. And this is just a reminder, this is people who live in high income census tracts. We're less than 5% of people in the neighborhood if you will, in that large neighborhood are below the federal poverty limit versus people where 40% or more are. And uh, the numbers and the difference was more striking, but basically what this says is you have a 14.9% chance of having COVID since the beginning of the pandemic. If you live in a district with a lot of poor, uh, low-income people and only a 7.4% chance in a high rent district, if you will. And so twice the chances. And then if you take that and multiply it by the fact that uh, for some people in New Mexico who live in poverty, which is the highest uh, in the nation for people over six, they're not two or three all in. Uh, that sort of emphasizes the challenge we face in our state. I do want to also commend Dr. Perron, who uh, right out of the gate uh, with the vaccine effort specifically targeted uh, high social vulnerability index communities to ensure that we were over uh, making higher than normal efforts to reach highly vulnerable communities and uh, to really build equity into the state, at least for the vaccination. So Laura, we're, that's been a great effort. and. Uh, we really appreciate the work you've done on that. And thanks for the great question, Julia. Great, thanks everybody. Uh, next we'll turn to Gabrielle Burkhart, followed by Michaela Heliam, followed by Dan Boyd. Gabrielle, you are unmuted. 
Okay, thanks for taking my question. Gabrielle Burkhart with KRQE here. Um, I had a question, Dr. Scrace, you mentioned meeting with the modeling team. Um, when might health officials anticipate that our booster shots will start to make a difference in our, or significantly impact, hopefully lower, our daily COVID case counts? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, I hadn't thought of it, so I especially like questions that I didn't think of before. I probably should have. Uh, first, I think they, I'm glad you asked the question you, the way you did, because we're getting still getting good benefit from the original vaccine when it comes to hospitalizations and deaths. But we are seeing 20% uh, percent of our cases now in vaccinated individuals. So I would say two weeks after the vaccine uh, for each person. So every time a New Mexican gets vaccinated, that immunity kind of gets back into gear two weeks later. Uh, so, so then the question is, well, what percent of people do we have to see get a booster shot to uh, see a downtrend in cases? And we don't know. If I could get, if I had the opportunity to uh, <clears throat> vaccinate an additional, let's just say 500,000 people of my choice, I would put all those shots in unvaccinated people, people's arms first before the boosters. So again, the primary and most effective strategy is vaccinate the unvaccinated. But apart from that, I think higher risk groups, um, older people, you know, we're seeing medical professionals line up very, very quickly for the booster shots. There is no, uh, there's not a lot of hesitation there. When I went and got mine, the, the place was really packed. It was the most crowded place I've been in. And they did a good job spacing people out, but I hadn't seen that many people in one place in a really, really long time. So I think, uh, to, again, at an individual level, two weeks on a population level, I think, uh, the more people that get a booster, the quicker we'll see the effect. Um, and But at the end of the day, the more people who decide to get a primary vaccine, that's what's going to help us right now in our hospital crisis, in our ICU crisis, and in the fact that we're seeing a, uh, a much higher and, and, frankly, unnecessary number of deaths compared to where we were before. Thank you, Dr. Scrace. So next, we'll, I'll ask a question on behalf of Michaela Elian who I believe she says UNM, I believe she's with the UNM Newsport and is a student journalist there. Her question is, do you anticipate that the vaccination of children will slow the spread of COVID-19? Yes. Um, hi, we're from UNM too, <laughs> me and uh, David. <laughs> I mean, before. Um, so thanks for being a student reporter. Um, so yes, we do think that it will stop the spread of the, um, you know, help to stop the spread primarily because it's a group that's been unvaccinated. So you're vaccinated a new group of unvaccinated people, which automatically prevents more spread of the illness. So, um, so yeah, we do hope that that will show and, and, you know, Christine's team will be watching that to see that we're actually stop, you know, preventing more of the spread. It really prevents the spread to older people too, as well. Um, you know, people live in families and uh, those kids, uh, when you get, you know, COVID, they could spread it to older people. So yeah, it's a really good question. Thanks for asking. Christine, do you want to provide any epidemiologic perspective or compare this to influenza and what we know about vaccinating kids there? 
Yeah, I, well, I just want to say that um, uh, vaccinating children is going to be really important, uh, not only to protect uh, their personal health, um, but as Dr. Parahona already said, to help us stem onward transmission of this virus and help us decrease our current case rates. So absolutely great question. Um, I would say about currently 23% uh, of our cases are among children. Uh, so absolutely, I think vaccination of that group will have a big impact. Thanks, everybody. All right, next. Yeah, question. and I know that Matt. Just one quick comment, and I, I've lost my internet a couple of times, and I really apologize if Christine already mentioned this earlier. But you know, I think all of us tend to think that uh, kids, you know, they get COVID. They spread COVID, but you know, they don't really go to the hospital very much. And thankfully we've had a low number of deaths. Um, and when we have had death, deaths up until recently, they've been chronically ill kids with lots of medical problems. But we did have a recent death a couple of weeks ago. Did you mention this already, Christine, of a of a who presented to the emergency room with advanced COVID pneumonia? And we're still getting the medical records on that. We don't have a final report, but it's a chilling and extremely tragic and sad reminder that children, healthy children, aren't immune from severe COVID and even death. And those cases have been seen around the country, quite sporadic. But when we get one in within the boundaries of our state, it's I think it's a wake-up call to parents in addition who are sort of mulling over whether I get my kid vaccinated or not, there can be a real downside to not getting your child vaccinated. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, just want to add that according to the CDC, about 600 children have died in the whole United States. And so that's that's super sad. So those kids. Thanks, everybody. Uh, next, we'll turn to Dan Boyd, followed by Lisa Knudsen. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, followed by Scott Weiland. Dan, you are unmuted. Hi, good afternoon. Um, thanks as always for the opportunity. Uh, Dan Boyd with the Albuquerque Journal. Uh, I wanted to follow up. I, I, I know that this idea of a magic number or kind of a target for vaccination is, is kind of an elusive figure. Uh, Governor Lujan Grisham did say yesterday during a news conference that 85% is kind of the target uh, that she was looking at. I was wondering if you could say whether there's been some discussion internally on for the modeling team about that number or kind of, um, you know, if that level might provide some uh, decreased spread. Laura, do you want to take a shot at that one? I think, Dan, we have kind of um, dropped the predictions about herd immunity, if you will. Uh, I'm I'm all for getting to 85% because that's how I mean, we keep inching up. So I'm real pleased with that. But I don't think there's a magic number. And I think all the discussion we had earlier about this significant increase in cases with Delta and even in vaccinated people sort of calls into question the whole uh, herd immunity idea. I think I kind of switched over to more of the influenza model where 
we're going to see this virus mutate and change and probably our vaccination strategy over time will have to chase those mutations and changes in the virus. And so, uh, the more, you know, any number, any targeted number of people vaccinated than higher, that's higher than where we are now, I fully support and of course support the governor in that. But uh, I've also worked with the governor for a long time and I guarantee you when we get to 85% and you ask her what the target is, her answer will not be 85%. Yeah, I think, and I, I also think um, also what Christine was sharing as well is that it's also our behaviors. You know, the more people are unvaccinated, the more opportunities this uh, COVID can, can mutate. So I think that's also how we as a community respond to getting vaccinated. I also want to point out the equity issue as well. You know, we as a healthcare system also continue to, you know, especially at the DOH, continue to think about how are we reaching those most vulnerable populations that there is a gap, right? Even though we're over 70% vaccinated, there's groups that aren't 70% vaccinated. So how are we reaching out to people in high social vulnerability areas and also certain eth racial ethnic groups? So I think it's, it's, um, it's a long-term process of how we can keep on building trust, reaching out to people who aren't vaccinated because the more, the more pockets we have, the more COVID we'll have in those pockets of people who aren't vaccinated. So I'm not sure what the number is, but the more is better, right? Yeah, I would just add to that. I think um, if, if Delta has taught us anything and if this global pandemic has taught us anything, it is a, a, a major lesson in humility uh, over what we know and what we don't know. And so I would say, uh, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I, I don't know if there, there is a number, <laughs> but I, I know that it's absolutely essential to get vaccinated for your own personal health, but also to, to protect those around you that may be quite vulnerable um, to, this, to this virus. Thanks so much, everyone. Next, we'll turn to Lisa Knudsen, followed by Scott Weiland, followed by Chris McKee. Lisa, you are unmuted. Hi, this is Lisa Knudsen. I'm with Source New Mexico, and I just want to thank you all for the opportunity to ask this question. Uh, Dr. Grace, you may remember that about a month ago, I asked you a question about first responders, EMTs, and paramedics. And um, it's my understanding that at this time, they have not been included in the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that, explaining why they haven't been included. Um, that's, that's the question. Yeah, it's a great question, and you did ask it before. I remember it, and it, has, it was a hard question then. And I and I gotta say, it ain't gotten any easier in the past month. We do know that some very, very large groups of first responders, and particularly ambulance crews that work for large delivery systems. For example, Albuquerque Ambulance is a subsidiary of Presbyterian, and so they all fell under the vaccine requirement as enforced. By press. We do have a, a bit of a shortage and we're, you know, right now we talk mainly about ICU beds, but we also have a criti critical short transport and we continue to talk with those groups. They've traditionally been more conservative about uh, issues related to personal freedoms versus societal public health. 
good issues. And so all I can say is we're continuing those conversations. I think the governor actually started with a mandate for healthcare workers within facilities. Uh, we haven't expanded that mandate beyond that for an absolute vaccination mandate. And, and so we're about where we were today, I think. I would encourage you though to, to uh, not just ask me, talk to some of the uh, uh, the first responder groups, fire uh, firemen, MT group, and, and see what their concerns are. And and and, and I don't want to express their points of view on their behalf, but I think we're having reasonable conversations with them, and the and the individual delivery systems. Uh, requirements related to that. But the, but the straight answer to your question is, no, there is not anything that requires 100% of all first responders to be vaccinated at the present time. Can you guys hear me still? Yes, ma'am. Okay, great. Um, so I have talked to some of the, the first responders in uh, the city of Albuquerque, and they're saying that of all 679 firefighters, all of them are trained as either EMTs and paramedics and 85 to 90% of their car calls are medical calls. So I guess my follow-up question is, why aren't they considered healthcare workers um, in the sense that they do occasionally transport into hospitals? Yeah, I think the definition in the public health order is that they're uh, uh, defined clearly which healthcare workers were included, and it was those in hospitals and congregate living facilities, for example, doctors in a private practice and their staff did not fall under the public health order. You know, doctors who work at UNM or Press or Loveless uh, generally did fall under the, uh, the public health order because those organizations are big enough that they just decided, you know what? We're just going to vaccinate everybody and 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 uh, do it that way. So it's not that the public health order doesn't consider them healthcare workers. It's just that it doesn't at this point in time when the governor made that decision include various groups of of healthcare workers, not just EMTs and firefighters and police officers. Thanks, everybody. Next, we'll turn to <clears throat> Scott Weiland followed by Chris McKee. And that's all the hands I see at this time. I've put down your hand if you if you had it up earlier and asked a question. So if you'd like to now get in line again, by all means, feel free to raise a hand and we'll come back around. Scott, you are unmuted. Well, thanks for taking the questions. So I will uh, say the question that I sent or emailed earlier. And that is, uh, any idea why New Mexico has uh, a higher infection rate than states that have lower vaccination rates and also uh, don't have mandated precautions such as Mississippi and South, South Dakota? Uh, just the New York tracker shows that uh, New Mexico is above states that have fewer precautions and restrictions and vaccinations. Yeah, and, and it's a great question, Scott. We kind of touched on it a little bit. I gave you a shout out for your good question earlier. I appreciate you sending the link in advance to the New York Times. And let me drop that in the uh, You did cut out a little bit. For everybody. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it could be me. I'm having internet troubles today. But uh, thanks for the link. I put it in the chat for everybody. 
Uh, we talked about this at some length. We don't, the answer is we don't know. Uh, we wish we knew more. We think uh, New Mexico was leading the country in vaccination initially. So we would be leading the country in waning immunity in theory. Uh, you know, in August timeframe when, um, you know, those, those of us who got fully vaccinated in January and February may be losing some of our immunity. The boosters will help with that. The Delta variant certainly is a much more potent virus and more effective in finding pockets of people. I think there are unique characteristics about our population, including uh, a much, much higher number and percentage of low income people than in other states. And we know that those uh, low income uh, neighbors and friends of ours are uh, have an attack rate of twice that of those who live in high income neighborhoods and they have a hospitalization rate two and a half times higher and a death rate two and a half times higher. So, so those are three of probably a, a number of factors that are all interacting together. I mentioned earlier, the modeling team had spent you know, kind of almost all of their meeting on Tuesday trying to wrestle with and see if we could tease an answer out. And I don't think we have a good answer. Plus, this is cyclic and every state has its ups and downs. And so we will, you know, if we're having one of our ups while someone else is having one of their downs, then we'll see what we're seeing today. But I think the real answer is we don't know. We have lots of theories and we're hoping as this evolves, we'll get more data to have a better understanding of uh, where we're going. For my money, I think the combination of being so efficient and getting everyone vaccinated right away and perhaps waning in immunity that goes with that, combined with the Delta uh, variant of this virus that's been so infectious are two of the driving factors overlaid upon the socioeconomic status of our state and the fact that we have the most the highest social vulnerability index in America would be my three things if I were going to pick that were the main drivers, but we won't have the data to know that for quite some time. I don't know. Good question. Though. Laura, uh, Christine, would you substitute one of my top three for something else or agree or what do you think? Now, I would say to unpack this, it's really complicated. And, you know, first of all, you have to look at um, you know, how much testing is being done. So how, how many cases are actually being identified? Um, uh, you know, there's a real difference from place to place on, on the actual testing rates. And so it's really difficult to know um, the true burden of disease without uh, significantly high testing levels. Um, the other thing I would say is, is it was clear that there were areas of the country that were really vulnerable uh, to Delta, and they were hit really hard um, with high levels of hospitalizations and, and deaths. And so I, I think there, there is a correlation clearly um, between, um, you know, vaccination and um, uh, your uh, level of vulnerability uh, to severe illness and death. Um, so I, I think those are two other things to think about, but I, I think when you want to compare one state to another, you, 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 you have to 
there, there's many different variables to look at, and and many of those are are uh, come down to how much information do we know, uh, how, how might reporting be different, how, how much testing is being done, and and then you can look at that that uh, uh, difference in vaccine uptake as well, and uh, zone in on well who was it that got sick during the last surge. And um, I, it was it was ma- mainly driven by uh, unvaccinated uh, persons, which is still the same surge that we're living right now. Just to build on that, I, well, I also I mean, think. I um, sorry, can you hear me? Just to build on that, I think there's certain pockets, like like David was saying, at certain points in time, some places are having a surge and others are not. But um, there is a good graph from, I think, Kaiser Family Foundation that maybe we can show in the next time that shows the higher vaccinated locations actually have had fewer hospitalizations and deaths. And, um, and it's, a, it's a great graph because you can find New Mexico on there and New Mexico has a high vaccination rate and over time, much less uh, hospitalization and deaths than other states. So. All right. I look for it. <laughs> Sorry, Laura. Uh, uh, thanks so much, everybody. Uh, next, we'll turn to Chris McKee, and then we'll go back through the, the sequence, and we'll go to Susan Bryan, followed by Julia Goldberg. Chris, you are unmuted. Hey there. Thank you very much. Um, this again, Chris McKee over at KRQE News 13. Um, I had a question related to the indoor mask mandate. It is something that often gets talked about here in the newsroom, but um, I don't get a sense that there have been many discussions about potentially changing the directive in New Mexico, um, just based on listening to these press conferences week to week, you know, we're not talking about ending the mask mandate anytime soon. So I did want to just pose the question out there. Um, what might it take for New Mexico to ease up the indoor mask policy and, and just to ask the question flat out, have there been any discussions about easing that mandate? I take it no. Thank you. Uh, Chris, thanks for that question. I think the answer to the second question is no. Uh, you know, when we show a map of New Mexico that's completely red, that's not a cue for us to think about how to relax our restrictions. And, you know, I'm actually, I think I said this before, for, I don't think we should have mandates that we wouldn't be willing to do for a year or two until we get to the other side of the pandemic. It's going on and off with things. It's just hard for people. And so I, I still, in my head, go back to that gating criteria we had for cases per 100,000. And I think that number, if I remember correctly, was 10. So 210 cases a day. And when we got to that level, I think that's when the conversations would begin. But, you know, just when, you know, we've got hospital workers doing double shifts and triple shifts sometimes, very sick New Mexicans, I think we all want to pitch in and do everything we can. And I know you do too, Chris, uh, to protect ourselves and our neighbors and friends and others from getting the virus or transmitting the virus that might result in hospitalization. So no discussions, and I'll be, I'll be happy to bring it up to the governor and her staff when we get below 210. 
per day. Christine would probably say when we get below 10 cases per day, but you know, she's she's an epidemiologist. So well, I think it's right. I think it's much less traumatic to wear a mask than to be hospitalized or or die from from uh, COVID nineteen. Though I understand people are tired, <laughs> people are tired, and would like to return to normalcy. Um, the other thing I would add is that this is a CDC recommendation as well um, that when the level of community transmission uh, is high. Uh, that um, we add that extra layer of, of protection by by masking uh, when we're we're indoors. Thanks, Christine. That's a great point about the CDC. Okay, I think do we have one more? Uh, we're on round two now, Matt. You got it. Yep. We'll turn to um, Susan Bryan next, followed by Julia Goldberg. Uh, and then looks like Michaela or Michaela would like to ask a question as well. So first to Susan, uh, you are unmuted. Thanks again. Uh, since we're talking about the public health order, I'm wondering, Dr. Sprace, this is kind of a policy question. Do you see uh, New Mexico hoping to maybe redefine what fully vaccinated is since we've been talking about the waning immunity? Could that not require to also be have our booster in order to be fully vaccinated. And the second part of that question is back to first responders. Do you see the governor maybe extending the public order to include that group of folks? Thanks. Um, I, so far, no discussions with the governor about amending the public health order for first responders. I know we've talked about it in the past, but not recently. Didn't come. I was talking with her today about a variety of issues, or yesterday about a variety of issues, that, and that was not one we discussed. Uh, and then the first question was, uh, you cut out a little bit, but it was about the public health order. And uh, Matt, maybe you could rephrase it quickly. Yes, if there's any discussion about whether the definition of being fully vaccinated oh, yeah. include boosters. Yeah, you know, I don't think we're talking about that now. And uh, I don't think we have enough science to redefine what fully vaccinated means. I think uh, New Mexicans who are looking out for themselves and their families uh, who have meet those criteria, like the three of us do of being 18 and older and having an underlying condition, uh, you know, we, we, we all got our boosters. I, but I don't think uh, there's a plan to really change the rules. I know also uh, Gabriella or somebody sent in some other questions about kids and schools and are we going to require the vaccine for school admission? Well, no, you know, not anytime soon. I mean, I can see we have a pretty elaborate process at DOH to figure out what vaccines are actually required. And uh, so the earliest we'd even be thinking about that would be, I assume, for the next school year. There are questions about, well, are we going to give only in-person learning to vaccinated kids and, you know, then have everybody else who's unvaccinated do learning at home? Nope, not under consideration. Strong, strong position of the governor and this administration to ensure we get as many kids in school and keep them in school as much as we possibly can because we know the learning is better. And so, uh, yeah, I think we would be super careful about just substituting a new definition 
for something. If we we're going to do something like that, we'd start at the ground up and really reconsider the pros and cons of those kind of decisions. But no discussions about that now. Now or today, we're just focused on trying to warn people to be more careful. Uh, we don't. We want to get some relief for our folks in the hospital so that they can actually, you know, uh, spend some time with their families and go home and be safe and have to worry so much about carrying the virus uh, to their, their kids, their parents, or even getting it themselves. Thanks. Great. And let's turn next to Julia Goldberg. Julia, I believe you're still unmuted. You can go ahead and ask. Uh, thank you, Matt. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, Dr. Space, you had mentioned, uh, well, three minutes ago, but also a bunch of other times, um, that you don't think there should be any policies that can't sort of last for quite a while, given that COVID seems as though it might last for a while. But in the most recent modeling report, um, when I looked at it earlier this, well, yesterday, I guess, um, it's mentioned something about um, that indoor infection control needs to be more stringent this winter than last winter. And at first I thought, oh, I wonder if that means they're going to reinstate like capacity limits at restaurants or crowd limits. But then that seemed as though that might fall under the things we can't do for a long time. So uh, I guess my question is, would any of those things come back? And if not, what is what would what would it require to make indoor infection control more stringent than last winter? Thanks. Yeah, you know, uh, Julia, the, one of the dynamics of that uh, the modeling team is that our modelers get to present their data and their ideas. So that kind of stuff are people's ideas, but not something that we're ratifying. We usually talk about most of them. You know, my idea of more stringent infection control indoors in the winter is like having everyone follow the actual public health orders we have right now. So to me, it's just more a higher of percentage of people when I go into my big box store to get a little part for some piece of like a plant stand that I'm making, you know, for my house on the weekend that everyone has my ask on and like that I don't really, you know, that we don't do the, the chin protector thing anymore. So I think it's just simple wearing a tight fitting mask when you're indoors, any place outside your home. And to me, more stringent control really just implies a good mask, tight fit indoors, everybody doing it. So that's a no, no, not bringing back capacity limits, probably. Well, you know, I, I'm not the policy decision maker. You know, I make recommendations to the governor. I think we're doing everything we can to, to control this pandemic, but it, all of us in government, you all as reporters, the public, you know, people are getting tired of this. And I think we just have to find a way that's effective to really battle this virus in the long run. And I don't know what that all is going to mean. It could mean that the boosters start getting adapted. Like there's a Delta booster that comes out that we get, or we settle into a yearly pattern of some sort of updated vaccine. Like we have for influenza with the most common viruses. I just think uh, my advice to the governor has just been let's let's focus as much as we can on long run solutions to this, which right now are vaccinated, unvaccinated populations, boosters, masks, indoor masking as a mandate. And, you know, I don't know what else everybody out there 
thinks they can live with or if there are people out there that think they can't live of anything on the list I just said, but we're trying to find a way to live with this virus until we find a better way to completely eradicate it. Thank you. All right, thanks so much. Uh, next, we'll turn to Michaela. And uh, Michaela, uh, good to have you with us. I think this is the first time, so please correct my pronunciation and let us know uh, where, you're, where you're from and what your question is. Thanks so much. You are unmuted. Thank you. Um, my name is Michaela Heelan, um, and I'm from the New Mexico Newsport and UNM. Um, I guess my main question was about your, you mentioned earlier about testing in schools for students. I, I would probably guess this, but would it be available for teachers and other staff in the building too, to go get tested if they are feeling ill or other reasons? Well, uh, that's a great question, and we already have testing available for teachers, staff, and students in the schools. There's requirements for teachers to be tested, particularly in the unvaccinated teachers on a regular basis. But if you're really, really curious about this, you have to mark your calendar and come back next Wednesday at either 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock. You're going to hear a lot more about the in-school testing program. But yes, definitely. You know, it's really interesting. We're going over the data the other day and uh, it turns out that at the beginning, like if you remember in January when some folks were back in school we were looking at case rates, three teachers had 75% of the infections, a three to one ratio of teacher infections to kid, kids infections. And now, and I can't remember the exact ratio, but it's at least flipped. There's at least three student infections for every teacher infection. And I think that I take that to be strong testimony of the effectiveness of the vaccine. You remember there's a big push to get teachers vaccinated in April. And so, but no, that testing is important. I appreciate you bringing that up, a reminder. Uh, the last thing I'll say, it's a technical point, is if that teacher is sick, we don't want them uh, at school. <laughs> if that staff member is sick, we want them to stay home and get testing at a drive-through site or a safer site. We don't want them bringing the virus to school. So the strategy for sick people, sick staff, students, and teachers is number one, stay at home no matter what, uh, in terms of don't come to school, and then get that testing in the, in the way that works best for you that same day, if possible. So, uh, but good question. And come back next week for more from Secretary Steinhaus. Thanks so much. Um, so that I believe is the end of the, the questions with or the list of folks who had their hands raised. Chris, you still have your hand raised, but I think that may have been from your previous question. Um, do you actually, want to ask another question? Yeah, I just have one more, if you will indulge me. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is uh, related to holidays. Um, last year, I think about last year, and I think Thanksgiving fell right in there with the two-week sort of shutdown because cases were surging, if I remember correctly. Um, and I think it dovetails kind of off of what Julia was, was asking about. And, and maybe just the broadly, the question is, you know, what, what are you sort of telling New Mexicans about holidays? Uh, should they anticipate any sort of further guidance or instructions? Um, or 
Um, is it kind of like what you were suggesting, I think, a little bit earlier, Dr. Grace, is that at this point, it's really up for everybody to do their part? One of my colleagues want to take a shot at this one. Um, you're breaking up a little bit. Um, and I'm sorry, I may not have heard the entire question. I missed some of the questions. So. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm sorry. Let me let me try and ask it again. Can you guys hear me okay right now? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, just very quickly uh, in recap, holidays were very different last year. There was a surge in cases. Coming back to this year, should we expect rules or changes from the state or is it kind of kind of incumbent on everyone to sort of make their best decisions and maybe expect a little guidance from the state, but maybe not necessarily the rules on how many people you can gather with and such. Thank you. Yeah, as I look ahead, I'm thinking it's gonna be guidance like it was last time. I think a piece of guidance we haven't trotted out in a long time that I'd recommend that we had last year that people consider seriously is remember when it was as long as it was your old, old own household, you didn't have to wear a max, mask, but if you were mixing multiple households, even in your family, you might want to consider that. Now, nobody's idea of uh, Thanksgiving is sitting around the Thanksgiving table with your extended family, everyone wearing masks or watching football or lifting up, you know, lifting up your mask or pulling it down to eat. We'd all have gravy soaked and stuffing stuff masks by the end of that exercise. But I think you'll, you can expect to hear from us about best practices, cautious practices. The thing I worry about most uh, over the holidays is the air travel part of it. I think it's gotten, air travel's gotten safer, but people should not let their guard down. And I know we got a 9-5 mask off of Amazon. I've had to take a flight or two this summer to visit family and, you know, I wear that mask. I wear that wrapper. My joke is that I wear the N95 mask, the wraparound eye protection, and then I get three rolls of saran wrap and just cover my whole body. But uh, only the saran wrap is a joke. But I think extreme caution with travel, uh, not taking that mask off on the plane or in the airport and just general good hygiene, you know, and, and thinking about how you serve the food and, and those sorts of things to prevent spread. Um, and yeah, we will send something out, but I'm not, again, I think we have to find a way. Oh, dropped off again. I think, we, I think we lost Dr. Scrace there because of his internet connection. Um, but I, I think he was, sounded to me like he was gonna echo some of what he'd said before about finding a way to uh, continue in a way that's sustainable over time. And um, we will, as he said, uh, put out bulletins in advance of the holidays. Um, so now might be a good moment just to give him a, a second to come back if he's coming back um, well, and give the press add, a chance to, oh, sorry, well, go ahead. I was, gonna, I was just gonna add to that as well, is that, that say, I, I hope that we, um, we, we should have a platform to um, provide some, some holiday tips and uh, uh, safer ways to celebrate the holidays. And, and I know the specific question I think was related to uh, possible public health orders or, or, or uh, et cetera. Um, but I think we're gonna be leaning towards um, uh, um, sharing uh, guidance and, and tips. And, and just wanna say celebrating holidays obviously are, are very important, uh, important for our mental health. 
if nothing else. And uh, we, we want people to celebrate, but we want them to celebrate safely. And, and so I'm just going to take this opportunity because I take every, every uh, opportunity I can to say the number one way you can uh, make your holidays safer is to get vaccinated. And I'm sure sec uh, Deputy Secretary Patahone is going to shake her head. <laughs> so number one way to make those holidays safer is to get vaccinated. Um, you uh, may want to think about um, uh, if indoors, um, a well-fitted mask. And I think what some of our, uh, maybe some of those bullets on the modeling slides, what they may be referring to is you can think through the option of masks and a cloth mask is used for source control, which means you're putting it on to protect others. Um, but then there's other choices of masks where you can uh, start to increase uh, your own protection. So different type of respirator masks, which I believe Secretary Scrace mentioned, um, and N95. So there's different types of masks uh, where you could increase the level of protection to yourself. And it, no matter what, ensure that it's well um, fitting over your face. The other thing is outdoors is safer than indoors. So if it's not freezing out and if there's any way to celebrate outside, and that's why Halloween just seems to be a fantastic or, or a great holiday where most of it is celebrated outside. And then avoiding crowded places, indoor crowded places, poorly ventilated places. Um, and then um, you may wanna consider getting tested. If, if you're gonna be gathering with somebody in the family who's vulnerable, um, they may be vaccinated, but maybe they're quite vulnerable and uh, have um, a history of um, uh, immune suppression or multiple um, chronic conditions that would make them um, quite vulnerable to, to uh, infection. Um, you may want to get tested um, uh, before uh, uh, gathering. So those are just some quick suggestions. And then I think we're going to um, probably put something together and, and get that out. And then um, Sec uh, Deputy Secretary Petahone, did you want to chime in? Oh, no, I think that's great to have like some holiday guidance tips. Yeah, that's a great idea. All right, thanks to you both. Well, I'll just do a last call. Uh, anyone want to raise a hand and ask one final question before we call it a day today? Okay, seeing none, I'll put it back to our two remaining panelists uh, for any final words you'd like to offer. Um, I guess I'll go first, and I just wanted to say thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure um, to get the opportunity to, to share information and, and share some of our data uh, with all of you. And I would say um, primarily, I, 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 this, is, this is a hard time. We, we, we are all struggling. Um, we would like to put this pandemic behind us and in the past, and unfortunately, uh, we're not there yet. And um, that's why I had shared some of that global data just to show that you know we all continue uh, to struggle um, with this global pandemic. Um, and but we're thrilled that we do have effective uh, countermeasures uh, such as uh, various treatments that um, uh, Dr. Scrace talked about. And then certainly uh, vaccination is our, our number one uh, um, uh, countermeasure uh, to help uh, mitigate uh, the ongoing um, uh, spread and impact of this pandemic and also to keep ourselves safe. Uh, so I'll stop there. Yeah. And um, yeah, once again, thanks again, yes, for always, as always for having us. And I, I do think that you guys are the people who are 
helping to battle the misinformation out there, getting the message out. I know it's a confusing message, so many different kinds of boosters and possibilities, but, you know, thanks for hanging in there with us, you know, evolving with us as the information changes and we get more of the science. We're really, you know, trying to get ahead of, of the COVID, you know, it's so new, it's, it's a Delta, there's different things that come on. And so by having you guys out there and sharing the, the information that really helps to build the trust so people can get the vaccine. So thanks again for all you're doing. Good, and Dr. Scrace, any final words from you or other two panelists have offered a couple of closing thoughts already? I do have a couple of things. One is I want to give a shout out to Michaela Elon, who I believe is a journalism here at UNM. People have worked in healthcare for a really long time. So we're, I'm assuming this is part of your education. We're delighted you joined us today. Please get the word out. Uh, to go to UNM, you have to be. Oh, darn. I think we've lost him again. Well, um, I'll echo his praise. Michaela, wonderful to have you with us. Hope, mm -hmm. hope you'll be part of our regular press corps here at the weekly press conferences. Um, and for everybody, uh, lovely to be with you and we'll plan to be with you same time or, or approximately at the same time uh, next Wednesday afternoon. And until then, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.